1 Kings chapter 18, we begin with verse 7. And Obadiah was in the way, and as Obadiah was in the way, behold, Elijah met him. And he knew him and fell on his face and said, Art thou that, my lord, Elijah? And he answered him, I am. Go tell thy lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, What have I sinned that thou wouldst deliver thy servant into the hand of Ahab to slay me? As the Lord thy God liveth, there is no nation or kingdom whither my Lord hath not sent to seek thee. And when they said he is not there, he took an oath of the kingdom and nation that they found thee not. And now thou sayest, Go tell thy Lord, Behold, Elijah is here. And it shall come to pass, as soon as I am gone from thee, that the Spirit of the Lord shall carry thee whither I know not. And so when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find thee, he shall slay me. But I, thy servant, fear the Lord from my youth. Was it not told my Lord what I did when Jezebel slew the prophets of the Lord? How I hid an hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now thou sayest, Go tell thy Lord, Behold, Elijah is here, and he shall slay me. And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts liveth before whom I stand, I will surely show myself unto him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, and that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 18. And we know that the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. What a showdown the meeting between Elijah and Ahab created. The word of the Lord through Elijah had indeed come to pass. The nation had gone three and a half years with no rain. The drought and the famine had been severe. And Ahab certainly demonstrates to us that the drier and harder the land became, the harder his heart became, and the greater his animosity toward Elijah became. He certainly fits the mold, doesn't he, of someone who was hard-hearted. He reminds me of Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, who refused to let uh, the children of Israel go, even when the plagues from the Lord destroyed the land. And even after Pharaoh at last let the Israelites go, he soon after regretted it and tried to recapture them. What an example of a hard heart. Now we see that Ahab fits that mold as well. Man's depravity is certainly strong, isn't it? 
Ahab brings to mind the words of the Lord through Isaiah. Why should you be stricken anymore? Ye will revolt more and more. It's as if the Lord is saying, you don't respond to things that are designed to make you repent and come to me. Instead, you harden your heart toward me. Why should you be stricken anymore? Why waste time? It's as if the Lord is saying, you'll only revolt more and more. The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even unto the head, there is no sound in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. That's from Isaiah chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. What a graphic picture of a hard-hearted, depraved man. And like I say, Ahab certainly fits that mold. But so do we all, especially before we gain a saving interest in Christ. The irony to the narrative, however, is that Ahab actually accuses Elijah as being the troubler of Israel. So we read, And it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? I never will forget an analysis of the book of Revelation that Dr. Allison gave to us some years back. He said that what you find in the book of Revelation is God judging the world for its sin, and in response to that judgment, the world takes out its anger against the people of God. Since they can't reach God himself, they vent their anger against the people of God. But the people of God become more than conquerors through him that loved them, overcoming the devil by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they love not their lives unto the death. We read in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11. I should just say here in passing that I look upon that verse in Revelation 12 and verse 11, and I call it a life goal verse. Here's the spiritual plane I want to reach. Here's the higher ground that we sung of earlier, being able to overcome the devil and overcome the world by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony and loving not my own life even unto the death. Such a pattern, you know, can be traceable all the way back to Cain killing Abel in the book of Genesis. And this pattern, you could argue, runs to the end of time when Christ returns and ushers in a new heaven and a new earth, and then will we find the pattern broken. So Ahab accuses Elijah of being the troubler of Israel. Could I suggest to you this morning that this is the kind of troublemaker that every Christian should aspire to become. Oh, let me be that kind of troublemaker that Ahab accuses Elijah of being. I know that when you think of a troublemaker, usually you think of bratty kids that are undisciplined and bent on mischief. 
It seems they're marking up the walls or getting into fights or breaking things and getting others into trouble with them. And even when they're trying to behave, it seems like they have a knack for tipping things over and breaking things. Troublemakers, we call them. Well, in Elijah, we find a different kind of troublemaker. And he sets before us a good example of the kind of troublemaker the Christian should want to be. So let's take a closer look this morning at this accusation that comes from Ahab to Elijah. And as we take this closer look at this accusation, I want to raise and then endeavor to answer a very simple question, which goes like this. How does a Christian become the right kind of troublemaker? How does a Christian become the right kind of troublemaker, or a troublemaker like Elijah, in other words. Well, consider with me, first of all, that a Christian becomes the right kind of troublemaker, uh, first, by being willing to bear the reproach that is heaped upon him by those that accuse him. Art thou he that troubleth Israel, Ahab asks Elijah, the question is rhetorical. Ahab believes with heated passion that Elijah was the one responsible for all the woes that had come upon Israel. After all, Elijah was the one who came out of nowhere and announced to Ahab back in chapter 17 and verse 1, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. And I believe Elijah didn't mean simply his personal word, but the word of the Lord that he would be happy to convey upon his reception of it. Oh, what a troublemaker. He announces judgment upon the land. No rain except by my word. So Ahab thought uh, three years and six months later when he and Obadiah had to search the land far and wide in search of grass to save the horses and mules alive so as not to entirely lose all of the beasts. Oh, what trouble Ahab thought Elijah has brought upon Israel. Sort of makes you wonder, doesn't it, how souls that are so hard-hearted rationalize their hatred that way. Did Ahab actually believe that God would be subservient to Elijah, that under the right kind of pressure, Elijah could simply manipulate God to send relief from the drought? Oh, how distorted and irrational the thinking becomes on the part of those whose hearts are hard against God and against Christ. When Jesus showed his power by raising Lazarus from the dead, the Jews not only plotted how they might put Christ to death, but also how they might put Lazarus to death again. Here the man had died once and had been raised by Christ, and they thought they could do away with his testimony by 
putting him to death again, forgetting the one who had raised him from the dead. You see how hard hearts are governed by such distorted reasoning? Christ had shown that he had the power over death. He had just delivered Lazarus from death. So will the hard-hearted Jews now kill Lazarus a second time? Oh, how they underestimated the greatness of God and the greatness of Christ. But when your heart is hard toward God and toward Christ, that's how you reason, that's how you think. When you are so absorbed with yourself and with your own station in this sinful and temporal world, Christ rejectors think that way. Their hearts are hard. And in God's good pleasure, he is pleased for his people to bear the same kind of reproach that Christ himself bore. Christ, you may recall, was accused of doing the work of the devil. He was accused of being born out of fornication. He was accused of sedition toward the Roman government. He was further accused of being a Sabbath breaker. And the thing that really did him in, that led to his crucifixion, he was accused of being a blasphemer. He blasphemed God by admitting that he was the Messiah. All of these accusations, these Accusations that come from hard-hearted haters. Christ knew them all. And he tells us in Matthew 10 and verse 24, The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master, and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, How much more shall they call them of his household? This is an accusation, you know, that you should expect as a Christian. The Apostle Paul certainly resembled Christ that way. After he had been taken into custody for his own protection, we read earlier, Acts chapter 24, of an orator by the name of Tertullus, who came along with the Jewish authorities, which included the high priest, to represent the Jews before the Roman governor in accusing the Apostle Paul. Listen to the speech of Tertullus found in Acts chapter 24, beginning in verse 5, where Tertullus says, For we have found this man, reference to the Apostle Paul now, we have found this man a pestilent fellow, and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, who also hath gone about to profane the temple, whom we took and would have judged according to our law. Oh, you could summarize, I suppose, to tell us his speech by saying he's accusing Paul of being a troublemaker. Listen to the way the ESV puts it. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. The NIV translation reminds us of Ahab's words to Elijah 
We read in that translation, we have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. And then there's my favorite paraphrased version, which gives us a vivid description of the Jews' animosity toward Paul. We've found this man time and again disturbing the peace, stirring up riots against the Jews all over the world. The ringleader of a seditious sect called Nazarenes, he's a real bad apple, I must say. We caught him trying to defile our holy temple and arrested him. Paul and Elijah bear something in common, don't they? They Uh, something in common not only with each other but with our Savior and that they are deemed to be troublemakers. Isn't it interesting that in every one of those versions I've just cited, the word ringleader occurs. The word occurs only that one time in the Greek. What do you think of when you hear the word ringleader? Very curious about the use of that word to translate the Greek word, don't you think of the man in charge of the circus, the ringleader? The word means literally one who stands in the front rank, a leader, chief, or champion. So Paul was accused of being the leader, the chief, or the champion of a sect that was devoted to being seditious. What a troublemaker. I love the thing Paul and his associates were accused of when they went into the city of Thessalonica. We find this in the book of Acts, chapter 17, verses 5 and 6. We read, But the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also." Oh, don't you like the vividness of that description of a troublemaker? One who turns the world upside down. Isn't that a title that you would love to own? One who has turned the world upside down through the power of the gospel manifested to you and through you. Now we're told in Acts chapter 11 and verse 26 that the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. It's been a matter of some historical debate whether or not the term Christian was originally intended to be a derisive term. The way the term Puritan or Quaker or Methodist were all intended to be derisive terms. Was the term Christian intended to be that as well, a mocking term? When I preached on that text from Acts 11 a number of years ago, I presented a challenge then that I would renew to you again just now. 
whether or not the term Christian was meant to be insulting or not may be a matter of debate, but what's clear in the passage was that the disciples were recognized as being Christians by others. It was others that assigned that title to them, whether it was supposed to be insulting or a simple designation of what they were. Do others refer to you as being a Christian? Can others tell that you're a Christian? Or do you blend in so much with the world that the world takes you to be one of its own? There is a reproach to be borne, you see, when it comes to identifying with Christ. Christ did not come into this world to commend the ways of this world. He came into this world rather to expose it and to save his people out of it. And for that, he could be thought of as a troublemaker in this world. So the first mark of the Lord's troublemaker would be the Christian's willingness to bear the reproach of being thought of that way. Are you regarded in that respect, spiritually speaking, as being a troubler, a troublemaker, so to speak? In 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, Paul writes to Timothy about Timothy's knowledge of Paul. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me, yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now the heat of that persecution in our land, I think you could say, is only beginning to get hot. Reproach, however, has been our portion for quite some time. You'll be deemed strange for believing the Bible and for believing in the miracles of the Bible. I remember during the years I lived down south as a student, lived in Greenville for nearly 10 years in South Carolina, and I certainly discovered it to be true that the culture down there at that time, I don't know what it's like now, I think it was already uh, kind of a vanishing cloud even back then, but it was more conservative, and people seemed to have more of a general respect for the Bible and for the things of God, and profanity was certainly a lot less prevalent there uh, than it was in the north. And I remember when I moved back north, and even though I recognized this, still I couldn't help but be shocked when I was exposed to extensive profanity again. But not only that, but when I came back north, uh, I, I was shocked to discover just how widespread was the notion of evolution uh, among non-Christians. Uh, it was everywhere. It, it, it was the, the common way of thinking. I was 
the odd man out. Now, in the print shop where I worked and uh, dared to assert, no, uh, this world was created by God in the space of six days and all very good. What an odd ball I was then. There was a reproach to be born. Are you really that unsophisticated? Are you really so far behind the intelligence of common sense science that you don't believe in evolution, you believe that God is the creator? And if you're open and forthright enough in identifying with Christ, you'll be deemed a troublemaker. May we all be that kind of troublemaker for the Lord that we turn the world upside down again for Jesus Christ. So that's the first mark of becoming the Lord's troublemaker. We're willing to bear the reproach of being the troubler of Israel. Let's consider next that if you would be the Lord's troublemaker, you must become one by calling out the real source of trouble. You become the Lord's troublemaker by calling out the real source of trouble. Whatever reproach might have been heaped on Elijah by Ahab, Elijah knew where the real source of trouble was to be found. And so we find him answering Ahab's accusation in the words of verse 18, and he, that is Elijah, answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou in thy father's house, in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. Oh, there was the real source of trouble. And Elijah was willing to call it out, wasn't he? Even though he's standing for the second time now in the presence of Ahab, even though Elijah would have to be aware of the animosity that was born toward him by Ahab, yet he does not hesitate to identify the real cause of Israel's trouble. It's you, Ahab. You and your father's house. You've forsaken the Lord's commandments. You worship false gods. You have brought this trouble upon Israel. Pretty bold proclamation coming from the prophet, wasn't it? And breaking the Lord's commandments, I might add, has always been the source of the troubles of this world. Began way back in the Garden of Eden, didn't it? When the commandment of God was broken by Adam and Eve, oh, what trouble it brought into this world. The trouble of sin and rebellion and the judgment that such things deserve. Now, the breaking of the Lord's commandments and the worshiping of false gods was certainly the cause of Israel's trouble in Ahab's day. You may recall from earlier studies in the prophet Elijah that I cited in one of our very early studies the words of Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verse 16 where the Lord says, Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived and ye turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you and he shut up the heaven that there be no rain 
and that the land yield not her fruit, unless ye perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord giveth you. You remember how I pointed out how A.W. Pink took a verse like that. Here is a covenant promise given by God. And this was the condition of the covenant between God and Israel, that they follow the Lord, keep his commandments, worship only him, or become subjected to this very particular manifestation of God's wrath and judgment that the rain would be withheld, as indeed it was. Pink suggests, and I think it's probably accurate, that Elijah, who was jealous for the Lord more than he was jealous for uh, the easy lives of the people in Israel, it may very likely be that he would have pled this word before God. Lord, you've said that when the people turn away from you, you would judge them by holding back the rain. Oh, Lord, do it. Do it for the honor of your name, for these people have forsaken you. And then Pink suggests that assurance would have been ministered so strongly to Elijah's heart that the Lord would indeed keep his warning, his threat, that Elijah then approached Ahab and said, No rain, but according to my word. So this was the condition of the covenant between God and Israel, and there was nothing burdensome in such a condition. Basically, all they had to do was recognize the Lord as being the living and true God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, was the first commandment given on Mount Sinai, and the reason the Israelites were to have no other gods was and is because there are no other gods than the true and living God. Some people actually wonder, do the Ten Commandments apply today? Well, are there more gods today than one? Uh, was this only a temporary stipulation in the Old Testament because then there was only one, but now there's more than one? Oh, it's nonsense, isn't it? And that's why you can pretty well determine which commands apply and which ones don't by just thinking about the reason the commandment is given in the first place. So the worship of other gods brought trouble to Israel, and Ahab and Jezebel led the way. Now there's something worth noting in Elijah's answer to Ahab that I fear is largely overlooked today. Ahab's worship of other gods was not simply a private matter that pertained only to him on a personal level. We tend to view sin that way today, you know. We tend to think that whatever consequences must be borne on account of our sin are borne by the person alone who commits the sin, and nobody else needs to be affected. Therefore, my sins are my business between me and God, and nobody else needs to be concerned. Oh, that is very, very faulty reasoning, as our narrative indicates. Ahab's sin affected the nation 
of Israel. The drought and famine didn't simply fall on Ahab's house, you see. It came upon the entire nation. Now, it's undoubtedly true that Ahab's influence would have spread to others in Israel. But the famine was not restricted simply to the ones that were influenced by Ahab. It was Ahab and his father's house, you see, that troubled Israel and that brought judgment upon the whole nation. And from this and other narratives in the Old Testament were taught that not only is sin a personal crime against the holy God, but the toleration of that sin becomes sin itself. I'm reminded of that sad and tragic event that's found in the book of Joshua following the conquering of Jericho. When the walls fell down, and the Israelites were able to advance upon the city and take it. The Israelites were commanded at that time not to take to themselves anything that was found in that cursed city, but a man by the name of Achan couldn't resist the temptation to take to himself a Babylonish garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold. And as a result of Achan's sin, the whole nation was made weak. And we find the account of the Israelites fleeing in defeat from the little city of Ai. O oh Lord, what shall I say when Israel turneth their backs before their enemies? Joshua pleads in Joshua chapter 7 and verse 8. For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land shall hear of it and shall environ us round and cut off our name from the earth. And what wilt thou do unto thy great name? And the Lord responds by saying in verse 10, Get thee up, wherefore liest thou thus upon thy face? Israel has sinned. Would you note what it says there precisely? Israel has sinned. And they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them, for they have even taken of the accursed thing, and have also stolen and dissembled also, and they have put it even among their own stuff. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they were accursed. Neither will I be with you any more, except ye destroy the accursed from among you. Notice what he says, what the Lord says to Joshua. Israel has sinned. He doesn't simply say that one among the Israelites had sinned or that Achan had sinned, but rather Israel itself had sinned. The consequences of sin, you see, is never restricted simply to the particular sinner. In the case of Achan, the whole nation was weakened and it became the nation's responsibility to search out sin and deal with it. And so we read in Joshua 7 and verse 25, Joshua's words to Achan. And you can see the connection now between this and our text. Joshua says to him, Why hast thou troubled us? 
Why hast thou troubled us? It was the sin of Achan that troubled the nation. The Lord shall trouble thee this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones and burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Oh, it's a somber passage, isn't it? Sad and tragic and somber. And it also conveys to us today a very important lesson that Christians cannot be indifferent toward sin, toward any sin, anywhere. It won't do to say simply, the sins of our land have nothing to do with me, or even more precisely, the sins of the, of the apostate church have nothing to do with me. It makes no difference to me that the apostate church of Christ sanctions all manner of sin and denies the Bible and blasphemes Christ. That's their problem, not mine. Oh, dear Christian, it's your problem too. The sooner we recognize that, maybe the sooner we'll fall on our faces before God and plead for his mercy and for his dealings. So we read in Proverbs 14 and verse 34, we're told, Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And if you become so bold as to stand for the truth of God's word, and you call out sin the way Ahab, or Elijah rather, called out Ahab's sin, then you will be viewed as the one who is the troublemaker. The easy thing to do in our land today is to go with the flow. Go with the flow of woke ideology. Go with the flow of gender confusion. You don't have to agree with it, but just stay out of its way. Just let it go. And go with the flow of same-sex marriage. And go with the flow of infidelity and baby killing and all other manner of sin. Oh, may God help us not to go with the flow, but to oppose it and call it out as we have opportunity so to do. So when you have opportunity to express your views to your representatives in civil government, you avail yourselves of that opportunity. And I must say here, it's never been easier than what they make it today. I get all these things from various Christian advocacy sources calling on me to contact my representatives, and all I have to do is click the link, and the letter's already written. Just be willing to affix my name to it and send it. Never been simpler. Oh, we have to at least do that much. And when you have the opportunity to speak for righteousness in the workplace, you do speak for righteousness. And at the very least, you sigh and cry to God over the abominations of the land. Reference was made this morning to Christian having the mark in his forehead, I believe it was, Do you know, Alan never asked you this, I'll ask you now, do you know what that is referring to in the Bible? It's referring to Ezekiel chapter 9, where you have the account 
of the angel with the ink horn that is told to mark on the foreheads those that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that were done in the land. And they were the ones that were spared from the judgment when the judging angel went through the land. Oh, at the very least, we need to be sighing and crying over the abominations that are done in the land. The mark they received, as I said, spared them from the judgment that would come on the nation. So a Christian is willing to bear the reproach of being called a troubler because he knows and he calls out where the real trouble is to be found. Let's consider finally that we become the Lord's troublemakers very simply by staying true to God's word by staying true to God's word. We'll be coming very soon to the showdown between Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal combined with the 400 prophets of the grove. And after the prophets of Baal exhaust themselves by calling on a God that doesn't exist, and before the Lord sends the fire, Elijah will say, In chapter 18, verse 36, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. We have seen, haven't we, on a number of occasions already, that whatever Elijah did, he did by the word of the Lord He went to Ahab initially by the word of the Lord. That is strongly implied in the passage, if not explicitly stated. He abode by the brook Cherith, where the ravens brought him food, by the word of the Lord. He left that brook and went and abode with the widow of Zarephath by the word of the Lord. And at the beginning of this 18th chapter of 1 Kings, we read in verse 1, And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show thyself unto Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. Elijah functioned by the word of the Lord. Here's the mark of the Lord's troublemaker then. All that he does and all that he refrains from doing is directed by the word of the Lord. He lives by the book, in other words. And he lives in communion with God by his spirit and through his word. And to the degree that a Christian lives by God's word and esteems that word more than even his necessary food, to that same degree he'll be marked as someone who is different different from this world and all its glitter and glamour and sin. And when you shine as a light in this darkened world, which is your task as a Christian, saved from this present evil world, then you should think it not strange that the world would identify you as a troublemaker. Christ himself warned his followers In Matthew 10, verse 22, And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, 
but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. And in Luke chapter 6 and verse 22 and 23, again the words of Christ, Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice ye in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. We have certainly a minor instance of that, don't we, with Ahab before Elijah. Are you the one who troubles Israel? Oh, may we be willing then to bear the reproach we must for Christ. May we be the Lord's troublemakers, knowing as we do the real cause of trouble in a sin-cursed world, which is disobedience and a forsaking of the Lord's commandments. And may we, by the grace of our Lord, be true to Christ, for it will be only by His grace that we're enabled to endure to the end. Let's close then in prayer. And let's all pray. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we do pray that thou wilt help us to be willing to bear whatever reproach we must for the sake of our Savior. We thank you, Jesus, for what thou hast done for us. We thank thee for the reproach thou wast willing to bear for us. May we, in turn, be willing to bear reproach for thee, even if we are maligned and slandered and considered to be the troublemakers. May we indeed know the true source of trouble that comes from forsaking God and his commandments. And may we shine brightly for thee, come what may. So, Lord, hear our prayers, for we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.